October 14th, uh, 2012, lecture discussion number 85 on the Book of Romans. And before I get into it really fast, I'm going to throw this in here because I've been getting a lot of folks wanting to talk to me about this. Not a lot, but, you know, they, they, uh, they do call occasionally, and I do answer the phone occasionally. They want to know about um, the nation of Israel. This election is pretty significant, as you know, for this country because it may continue the direction of, uh, of where we have been the last few years, which is withdrawing support and being in an adversarial, if you will, a conflicting relationship with the nation of Israel, which is predicted. Uh, that is a great prophecy that Israel will be alone. And the question comes up all the time, you know, how much time do we have? What's really the sign that we need to be looking for? And all of that kind of thing. And the truth of that is, is that... Uh, Sooner or later, Israel has to build the final temple. Uh, and they have begun to put together the priesthood for that. They've, they've begun to build some of the furniture. They've begun to figure out how, uh, you know, where all the different things that they need to do, uh, where they're going to put them and how they're going to design everything. And how the, the, uh, the Levitical priesthood had to be reestablished as well as the, uh, the Cohens, if you will. As we see Cohens all the time. Cohen and Cohen, those people are, are descendants of, of Aaron. And so we have that priesthood and the, and the typical, if you will, the, um, the uh, Levitical priesthood. So that's got to happen, that temple. And so everyone always wants to know, well, when, when do you think we'll see that temple? Because the Antichrist goes into that temple and declares himself to be God. So that's got to be there in place. And I think there's two signs that will cause that. For Israel, there's the sign of the rapture of the church. And, and it's like I say all the time, people do not think of the rapture as a sign, but it is definitely a sign to Israel. That The fact that the bridegroom comes and takes the bride is an astonishing sign. The other sign, I believe, is Ezekiel 38. Both of those, when they happen, are two incredible signs that Israel will know uh, now, many, many things. Um, the rapture occurs. The church is gone. They're absolutely alone. They are overwhelmingly attacked by a confederacy that is led by Russia, but includes uh, the Middle East nations as well, uh, perhaps Libya, perhaps Egypt, uh, uh, but definitely Turkey, um, uh, Syria, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Russia. Those are coming. And when that army is destroyed supernaturally, they, had, they have no uh, ability uh, to defend themselves against that confederacy. When it comes, whatever the hook is that brings that confederacy, that is a great sign to them that God is still there watching over them and that he is the God of Israel. Now, also the rapture does the same thing to them. So we have two great signs. Uh, and... And they begin to build the temple. I think in Ezekiel 38, a couple of things will happen. As you know, there's this great debate between which is, which is the place of God, essentially, on earth. Is it Jerusalem or is it Mecca? That is the debate in the Middle East. And the, the, the Islams know that if Jerusalem were to be destroyed, they know there's prophecy after prophecy in the Bible that says Israel, Jerusalem, will not be destroyed. It will be the place that Christ returns. Uh, essentially, it sets up his kingdom. He will reside in the temple. And so if they could annihilate Israel, I'm sorry, annihilate Jerusalem, wipe it off the map, so there is no Jerusalem, 
then they would uh, go a long way to, pr- uh, to proving to themselves, at least, that the Bible is wrong and that, therefore, it has to be cast out. The same thing is true here. Mark your boxes. If we can destroy Jerusalem, then we will do a lot of damage to the Christian community. That would be a devastating blow to Christianity. And they think so, and they believe so, and that is probably true. On the same point, they have the same prophecies for Mecca. That is why recently you had a congressman, uh, he's no longer in Congress, but he told uh, the Saudi ambassador that if anything like 9-11 occurs again, that he would uh, personally see to it that our submarine force uh, sent nuclear weaponry at Mecca and blew it off of the map and rendered it unhabitable for thousands of years. Enough radiation to put it into glass. Huh? A congressman, I believe, out of uh, New Mexico or Arizona. That got their attention, by the way, because they know that if Mecca is destroyed, then Islam is in serious problem. So that, that is going on over there. Everyone has that understood. So this confederacy that comes, uh, whatever hook is put in their mouth by God, maybe the hook is just simply, you can destroy Christianity and Judaism by wiping out Jerusalem. Maybe that's the hook that gets them to move. I don't think so. I think it's, it's something that makes Russia do this that is to their great advantage. That's not much of an advantage for them. But knowing that that's happening is, will motivate those Islamic countries that are surrounding Israel right now to participate. If they can get rid of Jerusalem, they have gotten rid of Christianity and Judaism. They are very happy about that. So God, I believe, when he interferes, that clearly right here, uh, Mecca is on the table. If Ezekiel 38, if I'm correct about this and I'm... I'm pretty certain that I am, but I can't really uh, definitively defend it. But I believe uh, that God will, will uh, since he's so good at throwing rocks, he's got a chance to take out, he'll not only take the, out the dome of the rock, which is on the Temple Mount, so that we don't have to worry about that. He will wipe out many of the Islamic armies in the Middle East. He will destroy the Russian army. He will set fire uh, all over the place. Uh, it would be of no, it is of no, it's almost like an afterthought. But if he takes out Mecca, if he takes out the three holy sites of Islam, blows them all up, then what has he done to Islam? He's destroyed it as a religion. And everybody would know it. Now what would Israel do? They would have no fear about building the third temple or the temple of Ezekiel. They'd start building it that day. They're already preparing. The temple would start. What would Islam do? Nothing. But eventually, like I said, you have this issue. You have the Antichrist coming. If I'm right... And that Ezekiel 38 is the linchpin. The rapture in Ezekiel 38, one or or the other, or both are the signs that cause the building of the final temple. The Antichrist, as I said, goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. It's the Antiochus Epiphanes um, 
typology brought to full form. And so the Antichrist is in there saying, worship me as God. How anxious will the remnant of Islam be to worship the Antichrist? Be very anxious to do so. Because he's the enemy of who? He's the enemy of Christianity and he is the enemy of Judaism. And so they would be very happy to have a powerful uh, God-like being to worship. And so there is no, by the way, there is no evolutionist, there are no atheists in the tribulation. Everybody's a believer. You either believe in the Antichrist as God or you believe in Christ as God. That's the only thing that will be there. So everyone that tells me evolution is powerful and all of that, all I have to do is read ahead and see that's not the case. So I just wanted to get that off the table for those of you who ask me all the time. Okay, we're actually in the book of Romans, specifically Romans 5.12. That's where we're at today. I'm going to rush through it a little bit because there's a lot of material here. And uh, so it's going to seem like going very fast. And if you weren't here last week for the uh, background of this, it gets to be a little bit problematic. But I'll do my best. So Romans 5. 12 is where we at. Let me read it to you again. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. So let me go really slow. Just as through one man, sin entered the world. There's your big question right off the bat. Why? Why this one man causes all of this? How come we didn't have at least five guys go down? Why one? Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned or all sinned. So we have the therefore right off the bat. So immediately you know that's an amazing word. Back we go to figure out why, what happened before it to cause this statement. Through one man. That, that has to be explained, this through one man. Uh, sin entered. Well, wait a minute. Didn't sin come in? You know, where's Satan in all of this? Why is the one man the, the issue? How come we're not mentioning the woman? Didn't Satan sin before Eve? Didn't Eve sin before Adam? So why is Adam the one that gets the, the beating, if you will, here? What's the reason for that? And then death, if you will, I'm, I'm going to add the word then. Then death came. After sin, death comes, right? Death because of sin. Death through sin. And then the death spread. This is a very, very complex uh, verse. You just have so many whys. And it went to all men. It spread to all men. That means everybody sitting next to you today, including yourself, because all sin. So there's your verse again. Let's repeat it. Therefore, 
just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and this thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, through one man sin entered, then death came, came, and then death spread to all men because all sinned. See, you've got questions. Why? Why does death spread? Why to all men? Why the one man? Why death itself? Why can't we have, you know, a horse whipping? I've raised the question all the time. Why physical death? What's the purpose of physical death? Why is it necessary, if you will? Death, by the way, what's the reason that we have death? Somebody answer that. Now, um, he says so. Death for your sake. If there isn't death, what happens then? Yeah, you live forever in sin, by the way. And then how are you treated by the people that have authority over you? Think of it this way. Your house mortgage is uh, two or three thousand years paid off. I, I use this example all the time. If there was not death, what would man do to animals? What would man do to his enemies? How long would the horse have to plow the field? What would happen to the people in the prisons? How many times would they be? If there was no death, what would they do to each other? So, for your sake, he says, there's death. Well, and, and, and as usual, we come to a complete stop right here. Through one man. That's got to be solved in this very complicated verse. Through one man. Trying to accumulate the totality of those words that I just put on the board, as well as all the accompanying questions. It's not an easy task. The story of Adam and Eve is is beyond complicated. As you know, many of you have been here for lectures on Adam and Eve. It contains so many questions and problems. There's just hundreds and hundreds of them. And last Sunday, I started, uh, or restarted is probably more correct, at existence. Existence. What I'm trying to do for you is to give you the definition of existence. And it has, as you know, also throughout history been a great debate or a topic that many, many, many men and women have wrestled with. In existence, I began using Exodus 32, Genesis 3, Genesis 18, raising the implications again of, a, of existence, what it means to have existence. And if you don't have existence, then what do you have? What's the opposite of existence? See, every one of you right now knows you're you, and every one of you thinks you exist. Every one of you. There's no exception. What's the opposite of existence? Well, it's non-existence. Right? So now I have two definitions. What is required that i got to work out? Let me rephrase it a little bit. What is required to truly exist? Because clearly, existence has attributes. Uh, for example, do plants have existence? Yes or no? You can, there's hardly anybody here to fight today, so we can all, we can separate pretty easy. Do plants have existence? Yes or no? Everybody says yes? Anybody say no? You can be aggressive here. 
Yeah, I have to define existence. Let me ask you, do, do, uh, do uh, rocks have existence? Do water, does water have existence? Does light have existence? Wind, clouds, any of that have existence? You know you have existence. So let me rephrase it. Do clouds know they have existence? Do plants know they have existence? Is knowing you have existence required for existence? Yeah, again, we have to define existence, right? Is a physical form and movement enough to exist? That becomes the question, because I gave you things that have physical form and they move. Okay? Let me keep going and then I'll get your question. Or is communication, the ability to communicate, necessary? How about self-awareness, knowing you exist, knowing who you are, which is self-identity, knowing that you are you? How about cognitive ability or cognition? How about free will? How about immortality? Are any of those required before you can exist? Go. That's a very good question. Does the chair really exist? Because it's in his mind, isn't it? He perceives it, and therefore it exists because God has, has put it... I shouldn't have used the word exist. I screwed up. The chair has physical form because God determines that it has physical form. Or in other words, are we different than chairs? Do we exist in a way that is different from a way a chair exists. So then the question becomes, does the chair really exist? Or is it only us that exists? And this is all what? This physical world is what? It's, as, as I proved to you many, many times, it's 99.9% empty space, right? Are you empty space? Or is your body empty space? Okay, so that's where we're at. Again, for those of you who have been around for most of this series, C.S. Lewis's great statement about his deceased wife returns to the table here. He said this, if H, now her name didn't start with an H, and I know that, he's trying to, uh, trying to hide the fact that he wrote this book, Grief Observed, so that's why he did this. But he means his wife. If H is not, then she never was. Remember that statement? Pounded away at that because of its just extraordinary insight that it has. To repeat what Lewis was concluding there. If his physically dead wife can cease to exist or has ceased to exist, then she never had existence. That's what he's saying. Or to reword it again in a different way. If immortality is not a fact, then there is no existence. C.S. Lewis very quickly presented an irrefutable proof that immortality is essential for existence, and he did it in a stunningly concise way. That's why I keep bringing it back up, because of, of what it has meant to me to, to look at it over and over again. In any event, that, that is essentially the parameters of the Genesis 3 question with respect to Adam and Eve as well as Satan. Immortality is essential to existence. If you don't have immortality, you do not have existence. That's his, that's his position. And I think you will find, as you continue to investigate existence, you will find that existence requires immortality. In any event, it gets us back to Genesis 3 with respect to Adam, Eve, and Satan, um, which is the Exodus 32 um, uh, 
um, start over blot out that I brought up last week in the Genesis 18, which is the destruction of, of Sodom. It's the collision of omnipotent love versus omnipotent justice, uh, Genesis 15. Or as I put it last week, I'll put it in a different form, but it's all the same. Once you begin to study all of this, you'll understand why it's the same, or at least I hope you will. Let me put it a different way. As soon as Satan sinned, why didn't God do something? What was it that we decided that uh, needs to be discussed? Satan sins. Before he, before he has an opportunity to spread that sin throughout the entire angelic host. What's the obvious question? Did God know the instant that Satan sinned? Yeah, he did. What did God do? What would you answer? Think about your answer really, question, really carefully. I'm going to ask you again. Satan has sinned. What did God do? Did he do nothing? Or did he do something? He did something. What did he do? Now let's keep going. When Adam sinned, I'm sorry, Eve sinned. When Satan deceived Eve, why didn't God stop her? Why didn't he, why didn't he, and once she had made the decision to sin, then she goes back to Adam and she says to Adam, I'm dying. And Adam took time to figure out what to do, what he thought was the best thing to do. Now, he made an error, but don't think that it was a simple error. It was a very complex one, and, and, and again, I've covered it many times. Uh, but uh, Adam spent a great deal of time in my, uh, my conclusions dealing with this. But let me do it this way. Why didn't God extinguish Adam and Eve, or for that matter, Satan, when they were found with sin in them? As soon as the sin got in them, why not poof? See, it's really the same kind of question as as soon as you're saved, why didn't he take you to heaven? Why, as soon as they had found with sin in them, and God found sin... He could have stopped this spread, right? Couldn't he? He could have stopped the death in the sense that he could have ended it right there. It's the blot out. As soon as they got, it is the start over. Why doesn't he start over and extinguish Adam and Eve and Satan? Boom! When they were found with sin in them. The annihilation question is what it is. Why doesn't God annihilate? Or, and I got lots of ors today, what is the reason for isolation and containment of sin? The lake of fire, for example. That's what it is, isn't it? The lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels. There it is. They sin, he makes the lake of fire. How come he doesn't put them in there immediately? And why is he even making the lake of fire? What is the lake of fire ultimately, basically, what is it? Yeah, it's judgment, but it's, uh, what would we call it? What's their equivalent to the lake of fire today? Prison. Very good. It's prison. So why do I have a prison system? Okay, why? Why not just annihilate them? Why this isolation, confinement, and containment? Why not extinction? Because clearly we would think that there must be a choice between the two. But God is omniscient. 
He knows that this is the way it must be done, if you want to think of it that way. Why is it that the lake of fire was created uh, and, and ultimately or essentially is an isolation, confinement, containment process? Why not annihilation or extinction? C.S. Lewis concluded that existence and immortality are interwoven. Therefore, they're identic. They're same. They're the same. When you have existence, you have immortality. Man has immortality. Angelic host has immortality. What does that mean with regard to the prison system? What does that mean with regard to annihilation? And that would quickly, by the way, that answers the, all this, these whys that I asked you in Romans 5.12. Why through one man? Why does it enter? Why do we have death? Why does the death spread to all men? All of those questions are answered when you have the right definition, if you will, of existence. Why did sin and death enter the world through Adam? Why wasn't sin stopped? God could have stopped it. Why didn't he stop it? Or we would think that's a human way of thinking. That's a human aspect question. We think God should have done something different. What's that, by the way? Disrespect? Illiteracy? Why? But you need to know, why wasn't sin stopped? Why wasn't death stopped? The answer, because Adam was the first federal head of humanity, and Adam and Eve and Satan possessed something. What did they possess? Existence. That's the answer. And that's where we were, kind of, sort of, last Sunday, demonstrating the statement that, uh, I'm sorry, demonstrating that the statement, cessation of existence, is contradictory. It's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as cessation of existence. It is impossible to cease to exist. Okay? Existence cannot cease. Therefore, what do I do with all the people who feel that they will cease to exist? Notice how I said it. I'll put it all back. What do I do to somebody who comes to me and says, I feel I'm going to cease to exist? Let me repeat the word. I really don't care how you feel. I really don't. I'm sorry you feel. It screws most of us, if not all of us up. Start knowing. That, that C.S. Lewis is what he did so great. He said, uh, uh, feelings, I'm through with feelings, it's time to start thinking. He got that absolutely beautifully right. Stop feeling about cessation of existence. You can't cease to exist, it's impossible. It doesn't take much time to prove that to you. So, that's what we were doing, is demonstrating last week that the statement cessation of existence is a contradiction. If you think, if you feel that you're ceasing to exist, then you are saying you never existed. You never had any existence. Because in order to cease to exist, you must have no existence. Does that make sense? Remember, if H, let me add a now for you. If H is now not, then she never was. I hope C.S. Lewis doesn't mind me adding the word now to his incredible uh, statement. Anyway, all of that led us uh, last week to Richard Swinburne and Bernard Williams and their thought experiments on uh, brain hemisphere transplantation. Those of you who thought that uh, we do boring things here, (coughs) you would be right now. We went through uh, brain hemisphere transplantation uh, 
thought processes. We were asking the question of whether physical matter determines the location and continuity of the mental properties. Okay? Hopefully you remember all of that, which is, as you have immediately recognized, if I say that kind of statement, uh, mental properties follow uh, physical location of physical entities, you recognize that as a contradictory premise, don't you? Mental properties are spatially unextended. They're not subject to location. So how is it that they're required to follow a physical body when they are not have any physical characteristics. Anyway, we're going to revisit the brain hemisphere problems uh, again today and reintroduce consciousness as an option, or what's called the zombie alternative, to uh, Mr. Swinburne and Mr. Williams. And, and here I wrote, and I wrote right, why are there never any visitors? That's <laughs> just how it is. Huh? It is that. Uh... Is because I make a free will decision to do these kinds of subjects. Anyway, okay. What do I mean by consciousness as an option or free will as an option? It's a, again, it's like cessation of existence. It's, it's contradictory, if you will. But we'll go with it for now. Give me, uh, you seed me the premise. What, do, or the hypothetical. What does this have to do, this consciousness as an option or free will as an option? What does this have to do with Adam, the transfer of sin and death, or the purpose of the two, two, two trees? And Adam not being deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. If you don't know, there's two trees there, and that he had decisions about each tree, and that he was not deceived. Not deceived by Eve, he's not deceived by Satan. And God will not and does not deceive. So that puts Adam in an incredible uh, state of intellect that no one recognizes. So when Eve came to him with, with her poison in her body, if you will, and said, I'm dying, he was not deceived. There's no possibility he could be deceived by Eve. He was, uh, and if Satan couldn't deceive him, Eve certainly didn't. So erase that, that nonsense away. Consider for a moment, though, human beings, you, me, us, we, we, we possess consciousness, self-identity, self-awareness, understanding, and will. That's what we've got. There isn't anyone who doesn't think they have it. Now, the evolutionists will say every single human being that has ever lived is, is, uh, is confused and incorrect about their own self-identity, understanding, consciousness, and will. But all of those things that I just told you, they are utterly unlike anything else in the physical world. And consciousness, free will, self-identity, understanding, by the way. Understanding is the application and the applying of meaning to something. This, I see this, it, it becomes a chemical process inside my physical brain. My mind recognizes it as something I like. It's not my usual brand. But it immediately says, yes, we want this. We take it. We say mine. Hey, I understand meaning. I have intentionality with my little soda. And I love it. Okay, I, I assign something to it that is non-physical. Love. How do I do that? Those things cannot, cannot, are not meaningfully de- described by any of the categories with which we normally describe the physical world. We describe the physical world uh, this way. We say it's got quantity. We say it has charge. 
We say that it has causality. We say it's, it's subject to electromagnetism or has electromagnetic uh, impact uh, or capability or it is subject to gravitational force or possesses some kind of gravitational force. That is how we describe what is called the mass energy entities in this world. The physical properties of physical entities. Put it more simplistic, less simple. Make it simpler. Simplistically was the word I was trying. Didn't get it. We'll say it this way. How many, how much, how big, what's the power, what is it moving, what is it touching, where is it, what does it weigh? That's what we'll say about chairs and rocks and water and all kinds of things. Mass energy entities is another way of saying physical properties. But mental properties, consciousness and will, etc., belief, love, mental properties, feelings, mental properties, etc., cannot be described at all with mass energy entity parameters. They don't apply. You can't say, how big is love? You can't say, how big is your self-identity? Where is your self-identity? You can't say, uh, how much does your feelings weigh? None of those, none of the ways we describe mass energy entities apply to consciousness or mental entities. Just as classical Newtonian physics don't apply to the microscopic world. The, the, the physicists have to come up with uh, quantum physics in order to explain what's going on at the microscopic level. The macroscopic does not apply to the microscopic world with respect to uh, uh, Newtonian physics. And this is the same thing. Newtonian physics, how we describe physical entities, does not apply to mental Entities or mental properties. And so we have the zombie alternative. Okay, we've got to have a zombie alternative. Or the consciousness as an option alternative. Or the choice of consciousness. I prefer zombie. Because you can imagine, can't you? You've watched enough rotten TV. Can't you imagine? You've all seen, you know, the videos. You know they're zombies, right? You saw it on TV. Zombies are real. And if it's on TV, it's real. Or on the Internet. You know it's true if it's on the Internet. How could it ever get on the Internet unless it was absolutely true? So you can imagine a world of zombies. And zombies don't have mental properties. So you can imagine your zombie world, can't you? A world without mental properties. Or a creation without mental properties. No mental properties in a zombie world. Zombies, a robot world, the life, if you will, is devoid of free will. It's devoid on your zombie world, right? There's no free will on your zombie world. Zombies are just zombies. Robots, they don't have any self-identity. They don't know they're a zombie, and they don't know the difference between themselves and the other zombies. They're just all zombies. So far, so good? Can you imagine your zombie world? No mental properties, no free will, no self-identity, no awareness, no meaning, no understanding, no purpose. Everything is mechanical, automatic, random, chaotic, senseless, and meaningless. That's your zombie world. Got it? So we'll call the zombie world. Here's our zombie world. 
Isn't it beautiful? ZW. No. But we don't live on the zombie world, do we? We live here. We'll call this world A. You've all read the Superman comics, right? We had Bizarro World, right? No? Had to be old. Golly. We have our world. A and B. Our world is not the same as zombie world, is it? What does our world have? In the zombie world, only physical facts occur. All we have in the zombie world is physical facts. Mass energy entity. But in our world, we have what? We have mental facts. What's the obvious, most obvious of the obvious questions? See, only physical facts in the zombie world. But in, in, in the presence, but in our world, we have consciousness. And consciousness then is, is an extra what? Here I have only physical facts. Here I have physical facts. And I have consciousness facts or mental facts. So, zombie world. Physical facts, here I have two facts, don't I? What's the obvious question? Most obvious of the obvious. Why is this extra fact of consciousness here? Why this extra fact of mental properties, mental entities? What is God thinking? Why didn't he leave us as a zombie world? He didn't. He added... Consciousness, existence, if you will. That's what he did. Free will, belief. What is he thinking? After putting in place the physical facts, he's got a zombie world, doesn't he? And he ensured the physical facts with, his, with the mass energy entities. He ensured the mass energy entity physical facts. He made sure all of that worked. And he had that status and that characteristic of that world. But what happened next? Because I put it in order. He continues. What's the obvious question? Why didn't he stop with a physical fact world? Why does he continue? He chose to continue and he added the facts of consciousness, the facts of mental entities. I see this in scripture, by the way, as the what? Breath. Again, why? Why this inclusion of free will and meaning and purpose and, and intentionality and understanding what, what, and belief and all of these, consciousness, self-awareness, self-identity, why did he include that? Why did he continue? Especially in, the fa- in light of the fact of where we started. What's going to happen? Because he puts free will and consciousness, self-identity, what happens? Right here, baby. Right? Through one man, sin entered, then through, then death through sin, and then death spread. I added the thens. Why does he add the extra fact of consciousness? Why this inclusion of free will? But for now, I don't want to get bogged down there because I don't want to run out of time. But today, I want you to notice the extra fact of mental entities or experiences, if you will. Memory, belief, love. Why do these exist? 
There's my key phrase of the day. They exist. They're here. Why? Is it not possible? Here's a question that I get all the time. Is it not possible for God to have stopped at a world where only physical facts held? Answer that question. Let me read it again to you. I wrote it down as cleanly as I could. Is it not possible for God to have stopped at a world where only physical facts held? How many believe that it is possible that he would have stopped at a world where there was no consciousness, no self-identity, none none of that? How many believe it's possible that he could have stopped at the zombie world and not added the extra fact of consciousness? All in favor, he could have stopped. The very fact that he didn't stop means that it's impossible. Because if he stops, what happens to existence? Go. In the sense, in the sense that he determined that existence needed to be here. And existence requires immortality. Immortality, if you get through it, will require free will, will require all of the other mental properties as well. Why didn't he stop where, at a place where there was no memory, no faculty for learning, no discovery, only constant repetition of basic capabilities, constant repetition of physical fact capabilities? There's no memory, as I said, there's no belief, there's no learning, there's no love, there's no... Self-identity, there's no expression of any of these mental properties. All we have is the constant repetition of basic uh, capabilities, or what we call what? That's right, a teenage boy. Why is there memory? Why is there memory? Why do we learn? Why do we change? Why do we adapt? Why do we solve? Why is intelligence a fact? You take for granted that you discover, learn, think, and process Why? That had to be given to you. Because otherwise, you're in a zombie world where there's only physical facts, right? Could God have stopped at zombie world? No, it's a trick question. Okay, we've got to add some more pieces really fast. Or at least attempt to connect the pieces we've got on our plate here. Last Sunday, I introduced Swinburne's thought experiment, or principal argument for substance dualism. Do you remember what it was? I said that Swinburne began to ask the question about what, can, what happens to the mental properties when the physical properties are manipulated. Essentially, he pointed out that you have two hemispheres in your brain, right? And, I can, and they're both essentially uh, the same, and they interact with one another, and they control one left and right side of the body. And he made the case that I could take one hemisphere out and uh, put it someplace else. That's what he did. So, he is arguing with this thought experiment for substance dualism. Substance dualism is the position to reiterate that and refresh you, especially if you've not heard it before. It's the position that mental properties consist of a different substance than physical properties. Therefore, uh, that's where the substance comes from. Therefore, we humanity possess two substances. We have a physical substance, our body, and we have a mental substance, our mind, and it is a different substance. They are not the same substance. They're distinct. They're interdependent and they're cooperative, but they're different substances. 
Kind of like a smoothie. Right? Or whatever you want to make it. I have different substances that mix together, but they're distinct different substances. In this case, they're completely different substances. The mental substances is the mind, and the physical substance is the body. And they're, 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 you can't even begin to look at the two of them and see anything that looks in any way to be the same, which causes the immediate question of the origin of the two substances, doesn't it? But we don't have time. In other words, where did the two substances that are completely different come from? And how do they get interdependent and cooperative? And how do they get together to where they interact? How do they interact? But anyway, hopefully, hopefully you remember the premise of Swinburne's argument. He essentially said that by transplanting each half, if he took the right hemisphere of a given brain, so somebody gives him a brain, or he has a body that has a brain in it, the body's dying, so he takes the brain out and he separates it in half. And he has two other bodies over here that are, that are, are semi-functional as well. You know, whatever it takes, he says, technology will get to the place where uh, we could keep the body alive, though the brain is gone. It's just a thought experiment. And he takes the right hemisphere, and he puts it over here. And he takes the left hemisphere, and he puts it over there. And, of course, the brain stem and the rest of the spinal column and all of that is still there. He just takes the hemispheres, right? And so, the left, so to repeat it, the right hemisphere of a given brain is put into a different person. And then the left hemisphere of that same given brain is put in yet another person. We would now have a problem. We would if the mind, if you say that you, because here was your brain, right? First thing I did with your brain, let me put it up here again so you all follow this. I have your brain. What do I do? I take the right hemisphere and I separate it from the left hemisphere. Take the right hemisphere of your brain and I put it in this person in the left hemisphere and I put it in that person. Everybody still with me on that? If I do that, and if, if we believe, if, if we say that the mind follows the physical material, because you have a brain and a mind, a physical matter, the matter of the brain, brain matter, and I also at the same time have a mind. If, the mind follows the physical material, we would therefore be producing multiple instantiations. What do I mean by that? Okay, I've created two of you, haven't I? And then the obvious question happened last week. Do you remember? What's the obvious question? Which one are you? The good-looking one or the ugly one? Because this one is ugly. Is this you? This one is ugly and poor and and big-boned. Yeah, this one's very attractive. It has a bag full of money. Which one is you? The ugly poor one? Or are you this one? If the mind follows the hemispheres, which one did you become? I've produced two yous. If you say it does, then I've got two of you now. And if you're a teenage boy... I'm in big problems. There's not enough dividend checks to make this experiment work for me. In other words, there would be two persons in each body, by the way, if I left, if the other hemisphere was in there from the previous person, right? Let's just keep doing this. If I put your hemisphere next to somebody else's hemisphere, what do I got now? 
I have four people? Look at what I'm doing. If the mind follows the physical properties, ah, there would be two in each body or four persons. There would be two memories, two characters, two personalities, two beliefs. Which one is you? First, I let you be there by yourself. Now I just put you next to the guy that was already there. What happened to him? What if I do this? I shuffle him now. <laughs> if, the, if the mind follows the hemisphere, uh, all of a sudden I have this big mess. And what Swinburne is actually doing is demonstrating that the brain that was separated and transplanted cannot reasonably produce two persons. You can't do it. What if I got to the place where I could cut it into fourths? Now, can I get four people? Is that your view? Whenever I've done this, everybody says, well, I'm one of those. One of them is not me, but I am the other one. Well, then I say, okay, I'm going to divide it into fours. Now, which one are you? If I can divide it into fours, can I divide it into eights? Can I make eight of you? It is obvious, isn't it, that Swinburne, what he's actually doing again, is demonstrating that the brain cannot be separated, or that the the brain that is separated and transplanted cannot reasonably produce multiple persons, who then somehow coexist or combine with two or three or four other persons, producing four, six, eight, ten persons. His point is to show that what happens to physical bodies or physical matter Brain matter and their parts will not necessarily lead to knowledge about what happens to the person or the mind, if you will. Because you are the mind. You are the soul. You are not the body, right? So I can move your parts all around. That doesn't tell me for sure what happens to the self-identity, the self-awareness, or the mind. Again, physical properties and mental properties are distinct, unique substances. You cannot describe mental properties with mass, entity, Facts. So now, the self-identity is what Swinburne is showing you with this thought experiment. The self-identity does not follow the physical properties. So, what's the question now? Here, I asked you, which one is you? Which one is you? I moved your, this brain around. Which one became you? It's like, find the peanut under, you know, three-card Monty, right? Find the peanut on. Where's you? So where does the self-identity go? Swinburne begins to undertake that question by proposing that the only way to make any sense of the fact that moving brain hemispheres around does not solve the issue of the destination of the self or the mental properties. Okay? Well, let me repeat it. I can move the physical properties of the brain around, but I have not done anything to solve uh, the destination of yourself. The only way you can handle this discussion, the only way that makes any sense, the only conclusion that's available to you is that you are not composed solely of physical properties. You must have a mental component or a mind. You must be composed of two substances, body and soul, that are distinct and unique and have no, uh, uh, no relationship physically. One is non-physical, one is physical. They, they, don't, they don't look the same, they don't act the same, they are totally different substances. We don't understand non-physical substances. We've never seen a non-physical substance. We can't see a non-physical substance. Why? Non-physical substance? They're non-physical. How can you use a physical system to find a non-physical thing? 
So we, because we can't see it, we don't think it exists. We got to see it. I have to see a non-physical substance to believe it exists. Right? Is that your view? That's what, and then Swinburne went on to introduce Bernard Williams' concept of divisibility. Can the person be divided into two persons? Not the body. I'm not talking about the body being divided. The body can be divided. I can cut your nose off and put somebody else's nose, take your ears, get somebody else's ear, like put one ear over here, another ear over there. I can, I can manipulate the body. Parts transferred, replaced, manipulated, transplanted. But can the mental properties the mind, is the mind divisible? Can I split the mental properties in half? Or into fourths? Or sixteenths? Can I take your hopes and fears and beliefs and essence and memories and cut them in half? Can I cut a mental property in half? Can I cut something that is non-physical and divide it? Now you have the solution to Swinburne and Williams, Right? And that's what Williams was, it was illustrating. If our physical brain was cut in half and left and right hemispheres then transplanted into two separate bodies whose physical brains, both hemispheres, were removed so that now each had one half of your, of your brain matter in them, which one would you be, A or B? Well, Williams was pointing out that it's not, you're not divisible. Yourself is not divisible. What Williams further wished to impose on his readers, by the way, was this. Could you choose which one was you? Which is what I did that to you. And if you could choose it, on what basis? How could you accomplish this? And obviously, Williams concludes correctly, the self does not follow the physical material. It does not. It can't. So what happens to the self or the mental properties? The self must be a different substance than the brain matter because the brain matter doesn't affect where the self is. The brain matter is simply a receptor of sensory information, right? And then it's a, rece- a transmitter of instructional inter- information that it also receives. So who is reading the brain matter? You are. How do you read what the brain is doing? The brain is just chemical processes and electrical processes, right? And you're reading it. You are watching this brain light up. And what are you able to do? You're able to take, whoa, the brain lights up and says, ha, beautiful thing. I love it. How does my mind read what my brain gives it when what it gives it is just uh, the lighting, if you will, of neurons, the interaction, the chemical re- response, the electromagnetical response, I, I, I would submit to you. How does my mind interpret all that information? The brain matter is a receptor of my eyes and my touch and my taste, and my smell and my ears, and it puts all that up there, and something has to read it and give it meaning and understanding, Right? And then that something then has to tell the brain to respond. Ah, I see. My receptors see. My eyes see something. It's just chemical. It's light, right? I take light, but reflecting. The light becomes chemical processes. My mind reads those chemical processes in this big mush of matter. And it says, reach out, get it. Ha! So my brain then is a receptor and a transmitter of it converts impulses 
and uh, into, or I'm sorry, my mind takes impulses of and gives it intentionality and meaning and then submits information back to the, the brain matter and the brain matter then makes the body respond. It cannot, the brain cannot assign meaning to the information it receives. There's got to be something that reads it, right? And the meaning is so important for you to recognize. There must be something that can understand and cause responses, something that controls the brain. That is the extra fact of consciousness. Here, if I don't have that extra fact, I have a zombie world. But that was added. Why did God add it? Why did he add it? That's very important. Can he do anything but add it? I submit to you that it had to be added. Why? Because existence requires that it be added. So that tells you what existence is made of, doesn't it? This extra fact of consciousness is us. How did you become, how did we become us? How did you become you? Where did you come from? Where do you go? That last one's not so hard. You decide, you choose, you will where your destination is. I want to conclude with this. I want to talk about Thomas. Thomas and the frightened Apostles, how did they do when Christ was captured? And can, by the way, you capture God? And what does God say about himself? He says he's spirit. How do I capture a spirit? How do I contain a spirit? In a, I had, the lake of fire, now you know what it is, don't you? Anyway, Christ... Is that Gethsemane? What did the apostles do? They ran like little chickens. Off they went. Took off. Why did they take off? They were afraid. What were they afraid of? Being what? Killed. By who? The Romans and the temple guard. So they took off. Here they have next to them who? God, not good enough for me. I'm out of here. What are they saying about God? I don't think you're God. I'm more worried about the Romans. I'm leaving. See you later. If you are God, you're fine. If you aren't, well, sucks to be you. I'm out of here. I shouldn't say that. God, I have gone my whole career without saying that. And there it is. Oh, my goodness. I'll get letters for that. Thomas and the frightened apostles, they ran. They were so scared, and they were not going to believe that Christ was resurrected. What did he have to do to convince them that he was resurrected? He had to show them something, didn't he? He came in front of them physically and proved it was him, and they saw the light, the Shekinah glory that was inside him. But then they became, these frightened little cowards and skeptics, they became amazing men. Christ showed them something, John 20, 26 through 29. He said to Thomas, okay, it's great, you believe, you're all fired up, yay, that's cool. But what about the people that didn't see what you've seen? And yet they still believe, and they still went to the, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's some extraordinary people that walked up there and, took it. Absolute faith that they didn't see anything. 
That's what Christ, blessed are those people who believe and have not seen what you see, Thomas. Thomas believed because he saw the risen Christ who proved he was creator God himself. That's what Christ did to Thomas and the rest of the apostles. He proved to them that he was creator God in the flesh. And so I obviously, I don't want to ask this question. How exactly did he prove to Thomas and the others, these chickens, these runners, these cowards, these, these skeptics, how did he prove to them that he was in fact creator God, the Lord God Almighty? How did he do it? Yeah, they see the light. They feel the, you know, oh yeah, that looks like you. I can feel the wounds. I can see the, the hole. I can see the light coming out of you. <coughs> Is that going to be good enough? Oh yeah, you're resurrected, so now I'm going to be tore apart by horses. No problem. Go ahead, set me on fire. Not a problem. I've seen you. That's good. You're gone now. That's all right. I'm okay. I saw you. What did he show him? Just himself. Again, who is he? He's creator God. And he's going to prove to these men that he's creator God and that they need not fear what? Death. He shows them how they're going to die. That's evident in the text. How do you do that? Not a problem. He's what? Outside of time. He shows them. And I think that if he showed me, just put yourself in the demonstration. You're going to be proven that you have no fear of death. What's it going to take? If he takes me outside of time, what am I going to look for? Me. I'm going to find me. I'm going to Google me. Boom. There I am. Right there. How do I die? Ooh, that doesn't look good. What am I going to look for next? What happens to me after death? Do I get to see what happens to me after death? Did he show that to the apostles? Does he sit them all down in chairs and pull out the spirit of every one of them? Every single one. Make them look at their body. And then what's he going to do next? He'll put the spirit back in, right? Does he do that to them? Every single one. How many times would you need that done? Before you just went, okay, I don't have any. They had no fear of death, not any at all. They were unbelievable. And he said, he said, well, okay, you believe. Because you've seen. You've seen me. You know who I am. You know what I can do. What would it take for us little chickens to become fearless? How many times would you ask him to show you? What exactly would you want him to show you? Would he show you the distinctions between the mental properties and the physical properties? Does he separate them, put them back together? I call that Lazarusing people. How many people does he Lazarus? It's a new verb. Does he have to Lazarus you to do that? How many times you got to Lazarus you before you go, okay, I believe you can Lazarus me as many times as you want. And I have what? No fear of death, which is exactly what they have. Let's rise and be dismissed.